The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. It's Thursday, the 12th of October in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, Israel vows to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth as the Palestinians warn of a war of extermination. In other news, the boss of Barclays tells us that bank earnings remain under pressure and it's good to be wanted. The CEO of the London Stock Exchange makes the case for the upside of having fewer listings. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. Five days after Hamas carried out the deadliest attack on Israel in half a century, both sides are bracing for a major ground attack on Gaza. Israel has formed a rare emergency government with some opposition parties to see the country through its war with Hamas. The country's defence minister, Yoav Gallant, has vowed to wipe the group off the face of the earth, while Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the response will be overwhelming. We are fighting with all our strength on all fronts. We went on the offensive. Every Hamas member is a dead man. Hamas is ISIS and it will be crushed and eliminated just as the world crushed and eliminated ISIS. Netanyahu's comments come as the fate of dozens of hostages taken by Hamas over the weekend hangs in the balance. Despite threats that the militant group will start killing hostages, the latest rhetoric from the Israeli government suggests they may not wait to secure their safety before going in. The US president has again offered his full support to Israel, saying the US stands shoulder to shoulder with its ally. Joe Biden says he can't give details of the action they're taking to secure the release of American hostages. We want to make it real clear, we're working on every aspect of the hostage crisis in Israel, including deploying experts to advise and assist with recovery efforts. Now, the press is going to shout to me, and many of you are, that, you know, what are you doing to bring these, get these folks home? If I told you, I wouldn't be able to get them home. Folks, there's a lot we're doing, a lot we're doing. I have not given up hope of bringing these folks home. Joe Biden is conducting a series of calls with leaders in Europe and the Middle East to rally support for Israel in response to last weekend's deadly attacks. The US Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his way to Tel Aviv, saying the point of his trip is to show how they have Israel's back at a time of crisis. More than 2,400 people have now been killed since Saturday's surprise attack against Israel. The Israeli army says extensive attacks are underway against a large number of Hamas locations in Gaza. The bombardment comes as Palestinian Foreign Minister Riyad Malki warned that his people are facing a, quote, war of extermination. British surgeon Abdel Hamad is currently in Gaza and says hospitals are struggling. They are a little bit worried now because the electricity has been cut off. So all dependent on the generators. And if they don't have enough fuels to run them, then it will become a disaster. 
Dr Abdelhamid's warning comes as the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres calls for essential supplies of food, fuel and water to be allowed to reach civilians in the territory. Turning to other news, stagnant deal activity, easing volatility and peaking interest rates are set to compound pressure on bank earnings, according to the boss of Barclays. Speaking to Bloomberg's In the City podcast, CS Venkata Krishnan said a deal-making revival won't be happening anytime soon. There is a challenge in the banking environment. Number one, you've got deal flow, which increased very slightly at the start of September, still looking that the revival is looking a little further away. I'm still hopeful, by the way, that if things settle down, deal flows come back. So I think you need to look through this period. You've got interest rates which are peaking. For a bank, it would lead to a peaking in net interest margins. And then market volatility, which is there but less than it used to be, which will obviously impact the way you think longer term about trading revenues. Venkata Krishnan added that the lack of deals will hold back front office recruitment for the time being, while hiring has likely already reached a plateau in investment banking. UK listings may be thin on the ground, but the boss of the London Stock Exchange says there's value in such scarcity. Speaking to Bloomberg, LSE CEO David Schwimmer says... Uh, argued that it could be a selling point for certain firms. There are plenty of companies that feel that London, Europe is their home. We are the most international financial center, and and that includes the most international listing destination. You may be a company that gets lost uh, in the U.S. market and gets a lot of attention in London. Uh, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time about the litigation environment in the U.S., uh, which I think is painful for those who choose choose to list in the U.S., Schwimmer says he also believes that various reforms to boost London listings will soon bear fruit, adding that he expects listing pipelines to increase once economic conditions improve and the crises in the Middle East and Ukraine ease. Fed officials agreed policy should remain restrictive for some time, according to the minutes of their September meeting. They also noted that risks have become more two-sided, with the danger of over-tightening and a recession balanced against prolonging inflation above 2%. The release of the minutes come as central bank policymakers continue to weigh in on the rate path. Federal Reserve Bank of Boston President Susan Collins said officials are now adopting a wait-and-see strategy. In my view, this transition to a more patient approach, taking the time to holistically assess incoming information, was warranted for a number of reasons. In particular, it reflects the fact that we're likely very near and perhaps at the peak for this tightening cycle, with the risk of inflation remaining persistently high, more closely balanced with the risk of slowing activity more than needed to achieve price stability. Collins, who does not vote on rate decisions this year, said she expects policymakers will need to hold rates at restrictive levels for some time. And the UK housing market showed signs of stabilising in September. The latest survey from the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors showed an increase in inquiries from buyers and an uptick in sales. Expectations for housing transactions for the next 12 months also turned positive. Ricks says market sentiment was boosted by the Bank of England pausing its interest rate hikes, but it's warned that most of the indicators are still deeply negative, with falling house prices now the most widespread since 2009. Well, let's get more on the situation in Israel now. The country's defence minister promising to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth as a ground invasion into Gaza now looks increasingly likely. For more, we're joined by our head of Middle East and North Africa, Stuart Livingston-Wallace, for details. Stuart, good morning to you. Israel's ministry providing an update this morning on their activities targeting Hamas. What's been happening overnight? 
I think we can assume, given what we've heard overnight, that uh, it's been much the same as the last several days, where uh, typically hundreds of uh, targets have been hit uh, over 24-hour periods. So it'll be more of the same, we suspect. But again, that briefing kicks off in 20 minutes, and, and we'll have headlines shortly after that. Uh, what we can say about the situation on the ground, obviously, things are getting pretty bad in Gaza itself. Uh, as I think one of your uh, previous guests said, the electricity has gone off, and they are running on generators the fuel at some point will run out. Uh, and remember, there's a blockade around it. So, you know, similarly, we have uh, concerns about food supply, uh, medical supplies, and so on. And we do know uh, that something like 300,000, in fact, more than 300,000 have been displaced within Gaza. Remember, it's a very narrow strip of land. So typically, they're only moving a few kilometers at a time. Uh, we know a great many of them are, are taking shelter uh, in uh, the UN uh, schools that are operated there to try and offer them some sort of protection. Uh, meanwhile, on the other side of the border, uh, the reservists continue uh, to build up. Uh, I think, as I mentioned yesterday, we have this sort of forward base being built that can house certainly several thousands of soldiers. Uh, and most importantly, in terms of thinking forward to what might happen in the next few days, uh, we had that emergency government formed in uh, Israel last night, late last night, uh, that includes uh, at least one member of the opposition. So really, all of that is pointing to a ground war. Now, so far, we have not had anyone say that officially. Uh, but if you look at all the evidence, it really does seem to be pointing that way. Stuart, we've also had on the northern border of Israel as well, uh, Israeli jets striking Hezbollah targets after we saw guided missiles launched at an Israeli army post yesterday. How real is the risk of an escalation on that front? Uh, it is something I think that, that we and everyone else are very concerned about. I mean, obviously, Hezbollah is uh, an extremely large fighting force. It is very well armed. And while it is absolutely true that we've not seen any large scale incursions or large scale uh, attacks from that arena yet, uh, I think the big worry is that if a ground war does start in Gaza, that Hezbollah may open up a second front in the north. Uh, again, uh, very difficult to judge now whether that, the, that's likely to happen. But again, I would say they have form when it comes to that sort of thing. Now, the international community has, for the most part, been outraged by the actions of Hamas in Israel. If Israel proceeds with a ground invasion, could perceptions across the region change? Yeah, I, I, I think that is a very real possibility. Um, as you know, the, the sort of the last several years have really been punctuated by a series of nations signing the so-called Abraham Accords, that is basically making peace with Israel and trying to foster trade and economic growth as a means of bringing stability to the region. And that had made some headway. Uh, and until very recently, uh, you know, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, the expectation was that eventually we would end up with Saudi Arabia in that as well. Uh, but I think the events certainly of the last five days have put that on hold. And as you say, it really depends on what happens in Gaza. Uh, I think uh, if it if it gets very, very bad, uh, then that will change public opinion within the Arab world. Uh, and it's going to be very difficult, I think, for governments to continue with those sort of those measures. Now, quite how far that goes, does it end up with sort of the Abraham Accords breaking up? That That is really difficult to judge at this stage of the game. But uh, it is certainly a big, big concern.
Okay, Stuart Livingston-Wallace, our Head of Middle East in North Africa, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, let's bring in our Middle East anchor, Yusuf Kamal Al-Din, who's in, with us in our London studio this morning. Yusuf, great to have you with us. We are also, of course, watching for the arrival of US Secretary of State Antony Blinken due to uh, arrive in Israel the, today. What should we be expecting to hear during that visit? It's going to be even clearer indication of the kind of support militarily that uh, the Israeli government could get. We understand, of course, that uh, they're going to replenish some of the Iron Dawn supplies and uh, at uh, the world's largest aircraft carriers there as well in terms of uh, military force. But we have something a little bit more tangible that we can put our teeth into in terms of the volumes. And then after that, probably a trip to Amman to meet with the Jordanian delegation. Whether he meets with the king or not remains to be seen. The king gave a very passionate speech yesterday calling for an end to the violence. But more importantly, there may be a meeting with the president of the Palestinian Authority. So that is uh, Mahmoud Abbas. And uh, then we'll see whether Mahmoud Abbas and then by virtue maybe or by extension, Qatari diplomatic efforts, they can uh, bring everybody to the table and, and see how they can resolve this. I mean, obviously, with the stated military objectives from Israel to destroy Hamas in the Gaza Strip, which is a very, a very compressed area, it's, it's hard to see how they're going to get there, but they're going to try. Of course, the, the role of Iran has been very carefully scrutinized in recent days as well. The US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying that the Biden administration hasn't ruled out new sanctions against Iran. What should we be watching when it comes to Iran's movements and activities in, in the next few days? Well, the rhetoric is going to be key here because as much as it is controversial, they've been very selective about the words that they choose and they haven't actually acknowledged responsibility for it. They've cheered for it. That's a big difference in taking responsibility for it. What I would point to as well is how Saudi Arabia is reaching out to Iran and the two have already seen a bit of rapprochement throughout the year. So they reopened embassies only recently. For years, they didn't speak to each other. But now, in order to find a way to break the mold, the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, got on the phone with the Iranian head of state. I mean, this is something you know unheard of in the region. I mean, it's something, it's something you could consider a milestone within the context of Middle East politics in the last 50 years. And so they got on the phone and talked about the war in Gaza and maybe with some Saudi uh, Iranian coordination you know there can be a way to steer this into a halt in violence and the loss of lives. One of the elements around Iran that we are watching is of course because of the potential impact on oil markets. Now we had that jump on oil prices on Monday as markets reopened following those attacks. That has largely retrenched sense, but this is going to be a factor to watch when we're thinking about the, the market element of this story. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, all, all week we've been talking about the potential of increased sanctions coming again and taking away the rebound that we've seen in Iranian oil exports, which are about 700,000 barrels per day. I was looking at a note from McGuarrie just uh, this morning, and they actually make the case that what you're seeing in terms of the Israel-Hamas war is actually bearish for energy prices. The conflict is unlikely to upset physical oil flows because the Biden administration's policy approach has been to limit supply disruption. Uh, That's according to their team there. Uh, Basically, some upside risk associated with the conflict of the Middle East, but overall they remain bearish on energy prices and waning OPEC plus compliance given the rising production of sweet oils from the U.S. North Sea and Brazil. So, you know, a lot of moving pieces. The Saudis said they're going to keep coordinating with the Russians. They want to meet in person in November.
Okay, plenty to watch there. Yusuf, great to have you in studio and uh, bringing us your expertise as well. That's Bloomberg Television's Yusuf Kamal Aldin, who joins us in London this morning. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The Barclays CEO says a revival in deal-making is still looking a little further away. That's despite tentative signs of activity returning at the start of September. C.S. Venkatakrishnan has been speaking to Bloomberg's In the City podcast with David Merritt and Francine Lacqua. They've also been talking about the outlook for the UK economy. I think what we see in the UK, more companies are talking about efficiency and they're talking about quote-unquote right-sizing. At the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, the Chancellor of the Exchequer spoke about freezing civil service recruitment. So those are signs. We have to see how they build people on hear that and yeah. they think, right, okay, the, the government is putting back on hiring. You know, do, do you think yeah. corporate Britain and corporate America hear those signals and think we've got to slow down our hiring as well? Well, I think people, companies have been thinking about it for quite some time. Yeah. And you saw it in tech very earlier this year, much yeah. earlier this year. And yeah. you're, you're thinking about it at Barclays as well? Well, we always uh, look at the efficiency of our operations. And and so, yes, we do think about it as well. Yeah. You're way too optimistic. I mean, Dave and I speak all the time and I'm, I'm usually the optimist and you're even more optimistic than me. I don't see who's hiring. When you look at businesses, when you look at, you know, talk about the government maybe hiring less. I just don't understand how we're going to grow from here. So you're right that as people look at hiring itself, that in the very, very short term, everybody is a little more cautious. The two things to keep in mind in the UK to begin with is that there was a real structural supply shock in labor post-Brexit, right, where the labor force shrunk. And it wasn't that long ago we were talking about people. And in fact, the Chancellor of the Exchequer spoke about it again in, in, in the UK. We were talking about people who were retiring early and, and the impact it's having on benefits, people who should be able to work, but were not willing to Direct work. Resignation and all yeah. that. Yeah. So it wasn't that long ago we were talking about it. So I think our, our mood gets amplified one way or the other. Right. And so I wouldn't sort of say, so Francine, I, I really would disagree with you. So I wouldn't say that I'm optimistic. Perhaps I'm a little calmer than I should be. <laughs> so very, very calm indeed. And what about the whole banking industry as a whole in your industry? I mean, as Francine said, it's been an unbelievable couple of years, but you know, who would have predicted Credit Suisse would cease to exist? 
who've had the SVB debacle earlier this year. I mean, how does the industry feel for you at the moment? It feels a little bit like it's perilous times for, for, for banks. It, it depends on where in the industry you ask that question. And I think the large banks, the mega banks, banks like Barclays, the GCFEs, the money center banks in the US have all spent a number of years improving their capital, increasing their liquidity, managing their risks more carefully. And we all feel in a better place because of that. Now, the latest rules on Basel 3.1 cause some amount of nerves among people, but it's coming at a time when we are all well capitalized and none of the very big banks were being called into question Hmm. this year. What you had was therefore other pockets. One is fintech, Mm -hmm. where obviously there was a business model which was based on cheap money, which is getting tested, Mm -hmm. and they've got to show real profitability. And ultimately, size catches up with you in some of these smaller firms, because do you have the ability to put in all the systems? Do you put in all the checks and balances in terms of KYC, money laundering, and so on? And you see that about certain firms. And then in the U.S., regional banks, where they were of a certain size now, where if they creep up to about $100 billion, they get caught in the regulatory net. And of course, there was an asset liability issue, which came to the fore in February, March. Credit Suisse occupies a different part of this universe. Mm -hmm. It was a bank that was having difficulty coming into this year. And if you had said to people, in January of this year, that Credit Suisse might have difficulty in 2023, I think people would have accepted it because we knew that they were dealing with deep structural issues. The others were more surprising. If you think about your business then now as it stands, where are you most concerned about? You know, the IPO market has been pretty deadly. You did get a great mandate on ARM. Yes, we did. (laughs) But what does the pipeline look like? I mean, particularly in investment banking. Yeah. I mean, there is a sentimentality or sentiment-driven aspect to that pipeline. I would have said a month ago in early September, especially with ARM, Instacart coming, people were a little uh, hopeful. Interest rates have risen since then, and those IPOs themselves have traded off a bit from their initial peak. So people are cautious about the IPO market. Sentiment has to come back for that because it's a fundamental-driven thing in terms of the build-up to the decision to do an IPO but the timing is sentiment-driven, right? So I think if you look at it overall, there is a challenge in the banking environment. Number one, you've got deal flow, which increased very slightly at the start of September, still looking that the revival is looking a little further away. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm still hopeful, by the way, that if things settle down, deal flows come back. So I think you need to look through this period. You've got interest rates, which are peaking, For a bank, it would lead to a peaking in net interest margins. And then market volatility, which is there, but less than it used to be, which will obviously impact the way you think longer term about trading revenues. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa device. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe.
We bring you news and analysis every day on the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast, but now you can hear the latest news on demand whenever you want it. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.